Not that we haven't had enough announcements and stuff already today, but uh, yeah, the kids going to, uh, you know, Mexico is part of spring break, which is, you know, sort of Easter, right? Easter. It's a big day. Easter is uh, a, a big day in the life of the church, and I want to also challenge you guys. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, here's the thing, it's been on my heart. I, I, just, I just feel like, and I, I shared this a couple weeks ago, I, I, I think you guys all know I value the church. I think it's important that we're connected to one another. And I know, I don't think, I know there are a lot of Christians out there that just are disconnected. And uh, they're just disconnected, and, and it's, it's not healthy. It's not a good place to be. Some of them are friends of ours, people we know, maybe people that have been here before. Some of them might not be. Maybe they're your neighbors or people you work with that say, yeah, I, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I, I read my Bible sometimes. But they're not really connected. I would, I would challenge you to really prayerfully consider inviting them to come with you to church on Easter Sunday. Uh, and, and to be here and to get connected. It, it's going to be a fun day. It'll be, it's always a great day for us in the life of this church. We, our tradition is we share testimonies of what God's been doing in our midst in the last year. And so this is going to be a, uh, a good opportunity to bring people and allow them just to hear. So uh, that, that is that. I also want to just say again, uh, Shane's announcement about Bob and Penny. Uh, you, you know, it, 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 so most of you, many of you may not have ever heard of Bob and Penny Fulton. Uh, Bob and Penny kind of fly under the radar, so to speak. They're not the upfront folks. But I want to say this about them. Um, 20 years at, at, in the Anaheim Vineyard, and I, I talk a lot about John. I probably quote John Wimber at least once a month, if not more. And I talk a lot about John. He, John was the, he was the catalyst. He was the, he was the, the visionary and the teacher and sort of the big picture guy. But in that church and in our lives, Bob and Penny were really the pastors. Um, D Bob married Donna and I, and I there was probably a period of two years, maybe right around two years, that I met with, with Bob for coffee every, every week, once a week, and he just uh, really taught me how to live life. And th they are incredibly, incredibly wise and gracious people who really are just sort of filled with the essence of Jesus. And so I would encourage all of you to try to be here Saturday. Um, it'll be very informal. Bob, Bob and Penny really, I mean, their topic is relational Christianity. They just talk about what it means to live in community and love Jesus. Uh, but I'm sure there'll be opportunity to ask them questions and interact with them. Plus, they probably will have dirt on me. So, um, there's that. If you, if you want to hear any stories that you might not otherwise hear, it, 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 that's fair game. Um, so, so anyway, I, I just wanted to, to share that with you uh, and encourage you guys to, to, to be here if you're not out of town on, on something for spring break, because it, it'll be a fun time. So today we are going to end our series on spiritual gifts. We've been talking about spiritual gifts now since really the first of the year, almost three months. Uh, I hope it's been... Uh, encouraging and helpful for you guys. How many of you, can I just say, how many of you feel more confident or have stepped out in any way in spiritual gifts than you have before since we've been in the series? A few of you. So the rest of you are dismissed. No, I'm just kidding. 
Uh, th the goal is this, that we all grow together, right? We grow together and, and, and we, we capture uh, the essence of what God's doing and move on. So I want to just real quick as we get into it, share a book with you. I just got this yesterday. Just, it's fairly recent. I just got it. I wish I would have got it sooner. It would have been very helpful for this series. Uh-huh. You got it too. Well, did you, are you reading? Do you read? Do you read? Uh, this, the book is called Graceless, which you've heard me use that term referring to the gifts of the Spirit. Um, and, and it's really a very good exposition just on how the gifts work in church today. The author is a guy named Wynn Griffin, who's also a friend of ours, <laughs> Dr. Wynn. Uh, when I, I told you the term uh, gracelets was coined by a guy named Russ Spittler, who was a, a professor at Fuller Seminary. Russ was Wynn's mentor, taught him a lot of things. Wynn was at the, when Donna and I went through Vineyard Institute, he was one of the primary teachers for us there. He was John's research assistant for years. Uh, he's, he's a smart, quirky old guy, uh, but uh, I think you'll enjoy the book. You can get that on Amazon, I think. So uh, this morning, we're going to end this little series uh, with a look at 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 13. Uh, I've titled the message, The Most Excellent Way. And that is a phrase, that, it's an interesting thing. If you look at your Bible, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of an orphaned phrase. Uh, in between chapter 12 and 13, uh, Paul makes a statement. He says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. And all the Bible translators don't know if they should put that in chapter 12 or chapter 13. So it's kind of just hanging there in between. It's sort of an orphaned phrase. But it's a beautiful little statement. Now I will show you the most excellent way. Um, I, I'm gonna, I have a disclaimer. The disclaimer is this. There, there are a handful of passages in, in the Bible that are incredibly intimidating to teach. Okay, uh, The 23rd Psalm is one of them. Isaiah 55, uh, you know, all you who you know, come who are thirsty. Uh, those are intimidating passages. Uh, I think, for me, the, the interaction between Jesus and Peter at the end of John's Gospel, where they're on the seashore there in the morning, you know, and Jesus says, do you love me? And, you know, that whole exchange. Um, those are intimidating. This, 1 Corinthians 13, is probably the most intimidating passage of all to teach. And the reason it's intimidating for a teacher is that it's so powerful and, and, and so profound and so good that you just realize going in that there's no way I can do this justice. There's really nothing I can say that will live up to what this passage is communicating. Uh, so that's my disclaimer. But with that in mind, I want to say this, that I believe any teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit without this is inaccurate and incomplete. Um, so here we go. Now, I'll say 1 Corinthians 13, interesting passage, used all kinds of ways. It's quoted, it, 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 you hear it, you, you know, you, people, uh, weddings probably not the least. I, I think every wedding ever, this passage is read, right? Uh, Non-Christian weddings, people read it. Um, for good reason. I mean, it's, it's an amazing exposition on, on love. It really is. But, but we have to remember this. The context of 1 Corinthians 13 is spiritual gifts. 
That's really important. The context of 1 Corinthians is spiritual gifts, 13 is spiritual gifts. That's what it was written about. It's, it's, it comes sandwiched in between chapter 12 and 14, right? 12, 13, 14. It's in the middle. That whole section, three chapters, is an extended uh, passage on spiritual gifts and how spiritual gifts are to be used in the life of the church. Um, the Corinthian church was using spiritual gifts inappropriately. And Paul is trying to help them redirect them into a place where they will benefit from the use of the gifts and use them in a way that they were intended to use. So in chapters 12 and 14, he, he outlines some of the mistakes they're making and kind of brings some correction. And then in between, in chapter 13, he really shares how the gifts are to function in the life of the church. It's really, really important that we understand that Paul is not saying that love is better than the gifts or it's love instead of the gifts or love as opposed to the gifts. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying love is the way the gifts are to be used. So if I were going to um, illustrate, if I could give you an example that everyone would understand kind of in plain language, modern language, I would say this. The gifts are apps. And love is the operating system, okay? Everybody follow me there? If you have 300 apps, they're not going to do you any good if you don't have an operating system. They don't work. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are intended to be received by us from God, shared by us to others, to be interpreted, to be applied with love. That's how they're supposed to work. If that doesn't happen, they have no value. So Paul breaks that idea down in sort of three steps, and he talks about the necessity of love, the character of love, and the permanence of love. So let's pray, and I'll try to talk about it really, really fast, okay? Father, thanks so much for uh, uh, this beautiful passage of Scripture and uh, the reminder of what it means to live in love and to move in your spirit and love in your church. Uh, bless our time together. Amen. So first, um, the necessity of love. In the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Um, when, I, when I do weddings, I have a little phrase that, that, that I, I use almost every time. And I say this, that love is more than a feeling. It's a commitment. And um, lo love is a behavior. Okay, L love is visible and it's tangible. To love is to act. Okay, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in writing here, he cannot conceive of a love that exists only in one's heart. He cannot conceive of a love that exists in the realm of feelings and emotion without, uh, you know, some some concrete action supporting that. 
Um, so, again, the context being spiritual gifts, Paul's saying this, I can speak in tongues, I can prophesy, I can have words of knowledge, I can have the gift of faith. If, if I don't have love, they really don't mean anything. They don't amount to anything at all. I'm not saying that, Paul is. Um, remember, again, the Corinthians were saying that, hey, using spiritual gifts makes you more spiritual. You use the gifts, you're really part of the upper class. You're the elite. You're, you're the top of the, of the spiritual ladder. Paul's saying, no, not really. So you can do those things all day long without love, and they're not making you any more spiritual at all. The, the gifts of the Spirit will, in love, advance God's kingdom. They really will. They're, they're very powerful tools to be used to advance God's kingdom. But without love, that doesn't happen. In fact, I would say the opposite of that happens that's what Paul's identifying here is they actually break down the body of Christ and they cause division among people rather than unity among people. So Paul uses the example of gifts. If you have gifts without love, they don't matter. And then he goes for even further. He says that any religious activity you do, uh, you, you, can give, you can be the most generous person in the world and give all your money to the poor. You can, you can suffer for Christ. You can even martyr yourself for Christ. None of that means anything if it's not done in love. Uh, it, without love... All of that amounts to just religious activity. So to me, love is the line in the sand between true spirituality and religion. You want to really be spiritual, then you need to learn to love, or you're really just religious. Um, speaking of learning to love, uh, Bob Jones was a... Uh, he's currently deceased. He passed away a few years ago. But Bob was a weird, old, prophetic guy. Um, here, here's, I mean, prophetic people are weird, okay? Is that a fair to say? Can I say that a lot of times? Uh, they're weird. Bob Jones uh, was in a whole different level of weird. He, he was a weird guy. He, he was the weirdest person I ever met. Um, he, <laughs> I, I can't even describe First of all, he, did, he looked completely homeless. And when I say that, I don't mean that like some guys are kind of sloppy. He looked completely homeless. I, I mean, he, he looked like he'd been sleeping under a rock for years. He had Bernie Sanders hair, and, and he had like two different socks on, always, just never matching socks. And you knew that he had two different socks on because his pants were always about this much too short. His shirt had holes in it and like spaghetti stains from a week ago on it. And, and he... When he would talk, half the time you had no idea what he was saying. He would talk about the shepherd's rod and the day of atonement and all these things, and you're going, I don't know what that means. So sometimes Mike Bickle would function as his interpreter. He would like sit next to him, and he would say, no, wait, 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 Bob, what do you mean by that? And he, he would ask him questions. So when you say that, do you mean this? And that was really helpful for people in the room because you go, oh, okay, well, that's, that's helpful. But the, the best thing that would happen is every now and then, he would completely lose Mike, and you just see Bickle's face go. And you know, okay, we're over now. There's nothing we can do. This has completely gone off the rails. Um, so I say all that to say this. There's a few things that Bob said that were incredibly profound, and, and that I remember that, that, you know, those kind of words that have an impact on your life. And one of those words was, he's telling this story where he dies and goes to heaven. And he goes, I died and go, went to heaven. And then... <laughs> So Bickle goes, so wait, did you really die, or was that like in a dream or a vision? And he goes, well, I died. He goes, so you really died? He goes, well, I died. 
You go, what, do, what does that mean? You know, nobody knows. You don't know. So, so he's, he's in heaven. He gets, he gets past the gates, and he, and he says this. He goes, and I got, I was before the Lord. And he took my hands, put his hands on my face, and he looked me in the eye, and he just asked me one question. He said, did you learn to love me? And I just thought, man, that is it. Did you learn to love? Look, all of the other stuff that we put ourselves through, isn't really that important if we're covered in Christ. That's the bottom line. That's where this thing needs to go. That's, that's what we need to put our hearts to. That's what we need to seek after. That's what we need to, to look at Jesus and say he was the most loving person that ever lived beyond all the beyond, beyond all the gifts of the Spirit and the prophecies and the amazing stuff and the miracles. We want all of that, but what we really want is, is to be able to be transformed into the image of Christ and learn to love one another. That's really what this is all about. Without that, nothing else works. Nothing else really matters. Okay? That, that to me, I, I, I can't think about that story without getting convicted. You know, I think about all the times when I'm not that loving, and I go, Lord, just you got to change that. Okay, you got to work on that. You got to help me with that. That's what matters. So, love is necessary, all right? And then he talks about the character of love. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love is patient. Love is kind is his first sentence. And so Paul is saying that in our response to others, there's action. We are to be patient and kind. Um, we, we, we have to, there's both, there's both a passive and active dynamic to love. To be patient is passive. We have to be willing to wait for someone else to come along at their own pace. Is that not the hardest thing in the world to do? Would you, don't you wish everybody would just get to where you are right now? I mean, I just think, come on, people, get with the program. But Paul says, no, we have got to be patient with them and we have got to be kind to them while we're being patient, which is even harder. Uh, but that really is the essence of God's love towards us, is it not? Is not God patient, patient and kind toward us? We looked last week at Peter. Peter says, the, lo the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to repent or to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And I love Romans. Paul says, you show contempt for the riches of his kindness. What a great phrase. The riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. He is patient and kind towards us, and that's how we are to be towards one another. Um, 
Love does not envy. You know that the uh, essence of envy is competition. The essence of envy is when I, I feel inferior to you, and so I try to get better than you. And I don't really care as much about necessarily growing in my own right. I just want to be better than you. And that's envy. And Paul says love doesn't allow for that. Love doesn't allow for rivalry and competition to enter in to the church. There's, there's no place for that in love. We don't compare ourselves to one another. We don't try to better one another. Nor does love boast of its position. It's, it's not about being one of the spiritually elite. It's not about saying, I have this gift or that gift. There's absolutely no pride in love. Uh, it, it's interesting to me. I was just thinking about this yesterday. I was uh, reading and just kind of, you know, praying and thinking in the afternoon. And I thought about the, the connection between humility and love and how, you know, lo- lo- love is an attractant, right? You want to be attractive. And, and humility to me, I think for many people, at least for me it is, humility is an attractant. I find that I'm drawn to humble people. I want to hear from humble people. I want to be around them. And quite honestly, pride is, uh, is, is a repellent. I'm repelled by prideful people, which in some ways is a shame because some of them might have actually some very good things to say, but the truth is I don't really want to hear it. I don't want to be around them because of that pridefulness. Um, so there's really a connection between uh, not boasting and, and, and that, that humility that comes with love. And then it says, I, I love the NIV right here. I got to say, a love does not dishonor others. Other translations uh, say love is, I think the NAS says love is not rude, which is true. Uh, but I don't think that captures the essence of that word as well. King James, for those of you that like King James there, says, love doth not behave itself unseemly. Uh, Whatever that means, I don't know. (laughs) Doth not behave itself unseemly. Uh, But love does not dishonor others. So I have a a little um, standing joke with Sarah. She, uh, she, it's been something in her heart last season of life to be more honoring to people. So sometimes if one of us says something that's not very nice, she'll say, well, that wasn't honoring. And so when she says almost anything to me, I tell her, well, that wasn't honoring. That's pretty honoring. That wasn't very honoring. I know. <laughs> Way to go. That was not honoring. No, I'm, li- I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm honoring you. I'm commending you right now because I think you're right. Uh, Love, love does not dishonor others. Love thinks, speaks, and acts only in an honorable way towards one another. Look, here, this is, let's be honest. I am not a legalist in uh, the stretch of anyone's imagination. Okay, I've been called a lot of things, but never a legalist. Um, and no one loves to joke around more than me. But could we not benefit from being more honoring towards one another as a people? What if, we, what if we just said, let's do that for a while? Let's just do that. Let's just practice 
being more honoring and saying, that's not very honoring, when we're not. And just learn to be more honoring towards one another. What do you think would happen in the life of our church if we did this? I don't know. It's just a question. Love is not self-seeking. Throughout Paul's letter, if you go back and read Corinthians, which in our How to Study the Bible class we learned is a good thing to do, right? Read the whole book from beginning to end. Uh, You'll find that that's a theme. Paul continually encourages the Corinthian church to look out for the better of others, not just for yourself. And it strikes me as being the polar opposite of what we hear so much about in our culture today. Uh, it, it seems to me like this is the, the sort of the pinnacle of life's existence in the 21st century is finding yourself. I'm, I'm finding myself. That's, what, that's how I'll be better. That's how I'll be, you know, the person that I'm supposed to be when I find myself. And everything is about uh, self-worth and self-value and self-improvement and self-justification. Uh, and, and, you know, and I, it's so... It's so It's ironic to me that the largest section in the Christian bookstore is self-help. I don't know. I'm just saying. Shouldn't the largest section in the Christian bookstore be how to help other people? Wouldn't that be kind of more appropriate? I don't know. Observations. Love is not easily angered which is really a further uh, expression of patience, just a reminder. Uh, And it keeps no record of wrongs. And and once again here, how different would the world be if we learned to do that? You know what the downside of keeping no record of wrongs is? All the inner healing ministries would go out of business. I'm serious. There would be very little need for inner healing anymore if we learn to let go of the hurt that other people have caused our lives. But that's what Paul's saying. It keeps no record of wrongs. If you let go of that, I want you to know, not only will you be a nicer person to be around, but you'll benefit yourself quite a bit. The essence of unforgiveness is keeping a record of wrongs. The opposite of that is love. We look at... I said a little while ago, being transformed into the image of Jesus, learning to love. And I think the love of Christ is probably exemplified the most clearly, uh, you know, the, the, the clearest, cleanest, sharpest picture is when he's hanging on the cross, beaten to a pulp, nails in his hands and feet. And he says, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'm not going to hold this against them right now. I'm going to let this go. And Paul says that it's in our behavior, but it is also in our heart that we are loving. We don't rejoice. We don't delight in evil. So we don't, we're not happy when evil happens to somebody else. We're not happy when evil happens to our friends and family and those that we love. But you know what? We're also not happy when evil happens to our enemies. One of the things that bugs me the most, gosh, I just, can you delete this? I don't like it when Christians rejoice at evil happening to people that they don't like. I think that is so wrong. I think that is so 
unlike what God has called us to be. The essence, you wonder what the essence of Christianity is to love your enemies. We don't rejoice when evil happens. We recognize no matter who evil happens to, it's a sign of the brokenness of the world we live in, and that should break our hearts. Conversely, conversely, I never even got to the passage, did I? Sorry, guys. Conversely, we, we rejoice with the truth. We rejoice when the truth happens. Paul, Paul um, closes this section with four little statements. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love is unwavering and constant, and it's both present and future. Right now, love protects, and it trusts. Ongoing... Love hopes and perseveres. So, so, so the, the tense of the verbs is love is here and now, but it also continues on. So really quickly, uh, he ends with the permanence of love. Love never fails. Love never fails. He goes back to spiritual gifts again. I'm not going to read it all. And, and, and again, this is a kingdom of God passage. I, want, I, I do want you to read this on your own later because here's the point. The point is this, it all goes away. It all goes, the gifts of the Spirit go away. There won't, you, want to, I want, you want to know a secret? There won't be any prophecies in heaven. There won't be any words of knowledge in heaven. There won't be any healing in heaven. Because there won't be any need for any healing in heaven. It's all gone, it's all done. You want to know what there will be? There will be love. Love is eternal. Everything else goes away. Everything else is for now, but this lasts. That's what he's saying. Love in Christ will characterize the people of God now and forever, and you really can take that to the bank. Okay, let's stand.